Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, it's me, the Comeback Coach. Guys, I just want to tell you about a person in my life that is truly, truly amazing. And she's actually changing the world one house, one home at a time. Her name is Tammy Moses of The Hoarding Solution. She's the founder and chief encouragement officer of Homes Are For a Living, The Hoarding Solution, which is a veteran-owned and operated business. Tammy provides virtual consultations and workshops on the issues of hoarding. She believes in inspiring others to take their adversity and use it for the greater good. She is the voice of AKOPTH, adult kids of parents that hoard. She is also a voice and advocate for our, of, for YLITH, Youths Living in the Horde. You can connect with Tammy at homesareforliving at gmail.com and on Facebook at Instagram at The Hoarding Solution. So guys, if you know anybody that's struggling with ho- any kind of hoarding issue, please reach out to Tammy she has a heart of service and she truly cares about people. All right, guys, remember vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. Another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. Going to be talking about some of the most things that I'm most passionate about, passionate about recovery and resilience with our friend, Mr. Brian Cuban. What's up, brother? How you doing, my man? I'm living the dream. What about you? Yeah, just here in Dallas, Texas. Beautiful day. Uh, my cats, my wife. What could be better? That's it. Just living the Not dream. Not necessarily in that order because my wife's listening. Yeah, she go, She comes first, right? <laughs> Always. So um, for people that don't know you, you're an amazing author. You're an attorney and um, you have, have an amazing story. You got a new book that's coming out, or has it come out yet? No, it comes out December 7th. This one is my first novel. It's called The Ambulance Chaser. Oh, see, I love books like that. I actually got hooked on John Grisham novels. And yeah. I yeah. can't get your book. I cannot wait. Yeah, I, I hopefully, uh, I want to be the first. People say, do you want to be the next John Grisham? No, I want to be the first Brian Cuban. That's it. And, and you are a one-of-a-kind man. Um I'm so grateful that you decided to hop on and hang out with us today. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born. And sure. Well, what kind and, uh, of kid was Brian? It was uh, I'm a uh, person of long-term recovery. I'm in uh, recovery from alcohol addiction, cocaine, and from uh, two different eating disorders, uh, traditional and exercise bulimia. And uh, I have 15, uh, 14 and one half years in long-term recovery from those substances I am uh, and from those behaviors. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a little suburb called uh, Mount Lebanon. I am the middle of three boys. People know my older brother, Mark, the Shark Tank and Mavs. Uh, I have a younger brother, Jeff. My mom still lives in Pittsburgh in the uh, house we grew up in. Mark and Jeff actually live walking distance to me here in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, My father passed about three and a half years ago. He, uh, he was the greatest generation. He fought in, uh, was a CB with the Battle of Okinawa in Korea. And he uh, had a little trim shop with his brother, Marty. 
he was also the middle of three boys, my dad, where they reupholstered seats and put on convertible tops in Pittsburgh. I went to Penn State University, then on to the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Uh, I became a practicing lawyer in Dallas, struggled mightily with cocaine and alcohol. Uh, two trips to a psychiatric hospital, the first after a near near suicide attempt in the summer of 2005, uh, arrested, jail in 91, uh, three failed marriages, all as a result of uh, drugs and alcohol, even uh, going as far in 2006. It's a funny story to trade uh, Mavs championship tickets to my cocaine dealer. But finally meeting uh, the right person for me and uh, we will be celebrating our uh, going on fifth marriage anniversary coming up over 15 years together. See, God is good, brother. God is good. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been an interesting journey that uh, really you have to go back to, to understand the journey. You have to go back to Pittsburgh uh, growing up. I'm a baby boomer. I'm 60 years old. Like I said, the middle of three boys, my brother Mark, and then my younger brother Jeff. So what were you guys like? coming up when you're little boys what kind of work as you might expect as the firstborn was outgoing and he was entrepreneurial even then selling this door to door selling that door to door i remember our local newspaper there was a printer strike in the early 70s in pittsburgh so both the paper shut down the press and the post gazette mark and his buddies barely old enough to drive drove to cleveland about 200 miles away bought the cleveland plane dealer drove them back to downtown pittsburgh and sold them on a street corner for twice what they paid for them so you kind of knew what he was going to be, right? My younger brother, Jeff, uh, he was a good-looking kid, jock, nationally ranked wrestler, uh, beer parties, prom, uh, dates, girlfriends. And these were all the things I associated with love and acceptance. And I, I was classic middle child syndrome. I was shy. I was withdrawn. And I, I was... Uh, I negative said to and about me and kind of wore it as who I was like a skin tight suit. Very, very, uh, very shy and withdrawn. And unfortunately, I also had a really difficult relationship with my mom. And I'll tell you a little bit about this, but I want to make it clear to all of your listeners that I do not blame my mother or my parents for anything I went through. Parents do not cause addiction. Parents do not cause eating disorders. There is a huge difference between cause and correlation. Uh, and things that happen in the household can cause uh, mental health issues for people, can uh, trigger, not cause, mental health issues for some people later in life, and it won't for others, right? That's yeah. why it's correlation and not cause. There was a lot of fat shaming in my household, Richard. Uh, I was a heavy set kid trending towards obese, and I used to come home from school, and in Pittsburgh we called it junior high, here in Texas they call it middle school, and I would pull open the closet and pull out a can of Chef Boyardee ravioli. Do you have you ever eaten that? Like beefaroni and spaghettios. Yep. Used to eat it by the gobs. Yeah, and I'd open a can and put a spoon in. I wouldn't we didn't have a micro well, microwaves back then. But uh I don't know if we did, we didn't own one. And so I would just uh put the spoon in there and eat it right out of the can. And my mom would see me doing that. She would say, Brian, if you keep eating that way, you're gonna be a fat pig. Now, these were the things my mother's mother said to her. These were the things my great-grandmother probably said to my grandmother. Fat shaming in families is often, hand, is often generational. And my family came from the old country, Eastern European Jewish family, very dysfunctional 
kind of stereotypical Jewish grandmother, eat, eat, eat. There was a dysfunctional relationship around food. And my mother had a very verbally and mentally abusive relationship with her bipolar mother. At least my mom said she was bipolar. It, it was awful. And uh, these things kind of run downhill. And in the 70s, uh, my mother, as a young mother, had no tools to deal with these things. She had her own mental health issues. And it runs downhill. And not understanding all that, I grew depressed to hear these things from my mom. And I began to eat more ravioli and more. And I became a bigger Brian and a bigger Brian. And as so often happens at school then and now when kids change, for what other kids perceive in the negative, the bullying started, the fat taunting. And uh, it was it was tough. It was tough. These were different times. And bullying is worse today because it happens anonymously, much more insidiously over the Internet. But it didn't hurt me any less. Right. You, you're a product of your of your era. And in those days, going viral meant 15 kids in the lunchroom knew about it. So being called the fat pig and I became the sad clown to kind of shield myself uh, from the hurt. And so I would uh, kind of just hang around these kids. And in my mind, these were the popular kids. These were the, again, the prom queens, the prom kings, the kids who were holding hands with the girls, getting their first dates, their first kisses, walking down the hallways, holding hands between the lockers in the school. And I became, became very self-deprecating around, uh, you know, making jokes about my weight to myself. So they wouldn't know how bad it hurt, but it did. And all of this bullying culminated, Richard, in what I call the day of the gold pants. My brother Mark had given me a pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants. Now, if you're a, if you're a Gen X or, or not even Gen X, you'd remember Saturday Night Fever. But, early, you know, current generations may not remember Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta, the disco era, the 70s, right? Yep. And uh, Mark even taught disco, believe it or not. And he gave me this pair of pants that were his, and uh, they did they fit Mark fine, and he wasn't a big guy, but they didn't fit me very well. I had to jump up and down, spray the water bottle, and my butt looked like 15 cats trying to get out. But I didn't care because my brother gave me these pants. I love my brother. We were close then. We're close now. And I wore these shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants to school almost every day. Stood them up in the corner when I was when I got home. And the kids made fun of me, called me the fat pig, and I had kind of the man boobs. You know, said I needed to go to Sears and get a bra back when Sears was a big thing. Not so much anymore, right? But uh, I'm walking home from school with these kids. It's about a mile walk to my house from the school along a busy street. We're walking down the sidewalk, and I'm wearing this pair of shiny gold bell-bottom disco pants that Mark had given me. They're making fun of me, and they start laughing, and they decided I was just too fat to wear these pants. And Richard, they physically assaulted me. They tore the pants off me down to my Fruit of the Loom tidy whities ripped them into shreds, threw them out in the middle of this busy street, uh, down to my tube socks, my kids' tennis shoes, and my Pittsburgh Pirates t-shirt. They went on down the sidewalk, high-fiving each other like they had done the funniest thing ever. I walked out in the street, picked up the shreds, covered up my tidy whities and waddled home. People gawked. No one stopped. And I got walked into our house and no one was home. And I walked down into the basement. It's funny. Do you have basements where you are? Yep. You talk about it in Dallas and people think you're from Mars, right? In Texas because they don't have basements. Well, I'm in Jersey, so. Yeah, so you know what a basement is. Yep. And uh, we, I'll go down there and we had these, the house was built in the 70s and it was these old wooden creaking stairs. 
And every time the stairs creaked as I walked down there in my underwear, uh, I felt like the whole world could hear my shame with every creak. And I got, I felt like my father could hear it at his shop, at his trim shop. My mother could hear it showing real estate. My brothers could hear it, whatever what they were doing. And I put those shreds at the bottom of a wastebasket, covered them with trash, hoping that that would cover up my shame. And I would never have to look at my shame again. But that's not how trauma works, is it? Not at trauma all. Trauma threads. Trauma remembers. Uh, yeah. And that event was incredibly traumatic to me. And when people tra talk about trauma, you talk about there are so many different things that are traumatic that are trauma to one person that may not be traumatic to others, right? Uh, you talk about the things we hear about. You talk about war, post-traumatic stress disorder, horrible events and things like that, 9-11. This event, I don't compare my trauma to anyone else's, but I could go to that spot today and show you exactly where that happened, where those kids assaulted me. That is how traumatic that was to me. And that kind of set the tone for how I saw myself when I saw my reflection in the mirror, a fat pig who would never be loved by his mother, who loved him dearly. She was just struggling with her own issues, who would never get married, who would never have a date, who would never kiss a girl, who wasn't worthy of love by anyone, and more importantly, would never be worthy of loving himself. Now, were you, because you know I grew up in an abusive household um, to an addict, mother that was an addict, and, um, I, I got beat on. I got bullied a lot um, until I joined the army and then that shit changed. But, um, you know, a lot of times that um, when a person, when a child is um, abused or whatever, they turn to food or they turn to reading to help cope. And for me, it was both. It was eating and reading at the same time. So I totally get what you're talking about. So was eat, what besides eating was your coping mechanism? Was it reading? Was it watching TV? It was isolating, just okay. isolating in okay. my bedroom. I, I would uh, go in my bedroom and I would watch TV. And it's funny, I had this baseball game it, it's, uh, that I became kind of quote unquote addicted to. It's called Stratomatic. And it's, it's a rotisserie baseball game uh, where you use these cards and I would sit in my room hours on end just playing the Stratomatic baseball by myself. And and your now your brother was was you have an older brother and and a younger brother. Correct. Mark they... was about uh, almost three years older than me, and just about two and a half years younger. So Mark, I didn't tell either of them. I was too ashamed. I didn't think they'd love me anymore. I didn't tell my father or my and my. I didn't you know I didn't think my mother loved me at all. So bet she did and. Uh, so I, I didn't tell anyone about this. I just kept it to myself. And uh, wh where it where it came out, Richard, was when I went on to Penn State University. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I'm going to talk about this uh, this now, girl. Excuse me, but what year did you go? 1979. So Joe Paul was still there. Yes, Joe okay. Paul was definitely still there. This was uh, I don't know that how good they were in '79, but I went on to Penn State, and my dad drove me up there. And I'm thinking, okay, everything's going to be different. I'll meet friends. I'll meet girls. I'm getting away from the bullies. And it was the first day, and I was moving into my dorm. And my dad was helping me unpack my stuff. And I look out the dorm window into the parking lot. And kids are getting acquainted. Parents are out there opening trunks and pulling out the suitcases and all this. And I make eye contact with this curly brown-haired girl. And, Richard, I started to sweat. 
And I imagine my life with this girl in 15 seconds, my entire life. We're going to date, we're going to get married, and we're going to have two and one half children. And she looks at me, she looks at her friends, and I realized it wasn't a smile, it was a smirk. She cups her hand like a megaphone, right, like you do. And she said, ugly, ugly. And I'm not blaming, a lot of kids have nasty things said to him. I don't want to, you know, I, I, I don't want to downplay anyone else's trauma. And another kid may have said ugly back. Another kid may have uttered an expletive, flipped her off or whatever, right? But we, we respond based on our genetic, our social and our environmental programming. I was already, we responded stress based on that. And I was somebody who already felt ugly. And I don't blame this girl. If it wasn't this, it would be something else. And I remember at that time, as those words echoed across the parking lot, thinking my whole world was out of control. I was ugly. How can I no longer be ugly? What can I do that I would no longer be ugly to this curly brown haired girl? I could be thin because I incorporated thin with popular. I incorporated thin with dates, kisses, holding hands, football games, prom. So I began to restrict my food intake and restrict and restrict. And then I transitioned into binging and purging, traditional bulimia. And before I knew it, Richard, in 1979, before anyone was talking about eating disorders for men or women, uh, the singer, the beautiful singer, Karen Carpenter of the Carpenters, would pass away in 1983 from complications related to anorexia, bringing eating disorders into the pre-digital national spotlight, but kind of cementing it as a woman's stereotype disorder. She hadn't even, she hadn't passed away yet. So there was no conversation about this whatsoever, and certainly not for men, even though we know today about 30% or more of all those with eating disorders are in fact male, even though only one in 10 will seek treatment because it's so shameful, even in, the, even, in, even in 2021. So I didn't have a name for it, but I inherently knew that sticking my finger down my throat was something that guys didn't do, right? But what I did know is every time I binged and purged, I got this kind of feeling of peace in my stomach, this calmness that the next day that girl would like me. The next day I would be accepted by my by the other students. The next day those bullies would respect me. And so I had to have that feeling again and again. But after each feeling, the shame came in again and again of this engaging in this act. And then I transitioned into exercise bulimia, which is obsessive compulsive exercise for the primary purpose of offsetting calories. One of my bigger recovery challenges today, by the, by the way, my relationship with food and exercise. So that was the first way I began to dysfunctionally deal with the trauma. Now, the food. Now, like I, I, I was in the health and fitness industry for 32 years. And if you, there's anybody that any industry that really needs to be talking about this is the health and fitness industry and also the military infra industry. Because if you're in the military and you're fat, you're going to get shamed. And, in, you know, in the health and fitness industry, there's so much, especially with bodybuilding and fitness, there's so much of what you're talking about yeah. that goes on. And, you know, and people think, oh, they're, they're shredded and they look great. But, you know, when they step on the stage is when they're the most unhealthy and they're about ready to die because they've been, you know, doing everything they're not supposed to do. It's interesting you bring that up. I don't know if you read my books, but I was at OCS for two weeks. That's why I read, I read your books. That's why yeah. I'm Yeah. 
And uh, I was not somebody who should have been there, which is why I am not in the military. But in any event, cycling back to, uh, and I, I got a discharge on request, cycling back to uh, Penn State, uh, I, I, the eating disorders, they, I got thin. I, I got very thin. And, but the problem was, Richard, is that every time I looked and saw my reflection, whether it was a mirror, a car window, a classroom reflection, window reflection, I still saw this fat pig. And I was ashamed of my reflection. And so I began to drink so I didn't have to feel the shame. And drink and drink. And at Penn State, I became an alcoholic. So now I'm a criminal justice major at Penn State. That would have worked out well. I'd have been the first guy in the evidence room trading out the uh, baby laxative for the blow. Believe me, but I'm a criminal. I'm a, I'm a Penn. I'm a student at Penn State. Who now my resume is two eating disorders, uh, the bulimias, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm starting to uh, experience major depressive episodes. Not quite the recipe for success, right? I'm going to class drunk. I'm going to class hungover. I'm not going to class at Penn State. I was going out in State College. I was going to the state stores. With the uh, we have state stores in Pennsylvania. And uh, buying bottles of tequila when I turned 21, drinking those bottles in the alleyways of Penn State where the bars are uh, so I could get drunk. So then I could go up into the bars and hopefully talk to girls and this and that. But I got so drunk, I'd black out and pass out. Now, you know, I've been in, I've been clean and sober now. I just celebrated 33 years. All right. Congrats. Oh, oh, dad. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm one of the old, I'm one of the OGs, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but. You know, one thing about us addicts or alcoholics is um, we we can learn how to be great bullshitters. And for some reason, a lot of times it gets us out of a lot of trouble. So how did you even stay in school dealing with all these addiction issues? Uh, Penn State, it wasn't that difficult because you're I was in an easy major uh, and it was, uh, you know, it's straight grading. So you pull it to pull an all nighter before an exam. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't consider myself a stupid person. Uh, and I was able to get decent grades. And so uh, the problem is, again, is that uh, I've got decent grades, but I also have this dysfunction. I wanted to be a cop and uh, that would have worked out. But it, I, I'm sitting in the, uh, oh, and cycling back, the closest I ever came to any kind of epiphany that I might have a problem at Penn State is walking into a hamburger joint. It might've been a White Castle or White Tower. And I was drunk, of course. And do they still have the pamphlets that are the 20 questions? Uh, the, the, the 12-step groups, there were, there were these pamphlets, the 20 questions, and they were geared towards college students. And it talked about, do you black out? Do you do this? Do you? And if you answer, you know, and if you're checking off yeses, maybe you should call us. Here's the number. And I'm checking off yes to all these questions. And I just thought to myself, I'm a college student. We all drink. And that was as close as it ever came. No one ever said anything. And again, you know how it is. This was this was 1980s. There were you weren't talking about residential treatment or quote unquote rehab. I mean, you were either in you were either in the program or you were uh, in an asylum or you were in a hospital ward or you were on the street, right? White knuckling it. So there wasn't, uh, and especially on a college campus, there wasn't any outreach either. Much different time. Much different time. So what was it like when you move on further to University of Pittsburgh? Well, the way that what happened there is I'm sitting in a placement office, thumbing through cop jobs in a book it's before computers. 
And there were two guys sitting next to me who were from Pittsburgh, and they were talking about taking the law school admission test. And I started listening to them, Richard, and then the bell started going off in my head, ding, ding, ding. And it wasn't the bells of I wanted to be a lawyer. It wasn't the bells of I wanted to be emulate Atticus Finch to kill a mockingbird or be Clarence Darrow, make a lot of money, change the world. These were the bells of, you know what, Brian? Law school's three years. You can stay in school another three years and you can drink, you can binge and purge and you can run and you can engage in the exact same behaviors that got you through four years of Penn State without having to show your inner ugliness to anyone and exist moment to moment, second to second, the way you are used to doing it. Just the nose in front of my face. That was my line of security blanket. The fact my dirty, you know, the dirty blanket, the dirty secret, right? And the fact that I could survive that way was my normal. And so for those reasons, it made perfect sense to try to get into law school. I took the LSATs and I did well enough to get into Pitt, don't ask me how. And I started my 1L at Pitt Law as like I started my 1L at Penn State as an alcoholic, as uh, dealing with two eating disorders, dealing with depression. So how did that work out for you? Not very well. So, uh, so take us back to the dorm rooms. Rich, well, I was living in, uh, I was living, I had roommates and I was living in an apartment and it was rinse, wash, repeat, Richard. I was going to class drunk. I was not showing up. I was going out to the bars drinking. These were the only behaviors I knew. But the difference is that in law school, you actually have to study, right? And uh, so I did, did not do well. I graduated near the bottom of the class. It was by the skin of my teeth. And I still have reoccurring nightmares of going to graduation and the dean of the law school breaking out into a little song and dance that I didn't graduate and I wake up sweating, uh, grabbing for my non-existent diploma. And so uh, I just uh, kind of glided through law school, uh, very dysfunctional. And you, your listeners may say, how is that possible? I work with law students all the time going through the exact same thing. I, I get it. You know, even like I said, a lot of people that are listening to this are military. You know, a lot of people will think, wait a minute, how did you make it through the military? It's because we know how to compartmentalize things. Absolutely. And you figure out what is necessary and only what is necessary. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so you try to find the balance between, you know, you don't see it as dysfunction at the time. You see it as survival between survival and uh, survival in your, your inner survival and the outer survival, which would be the military, right? Having to deal with, you know, the real world. So and in law school, in, I'll finish, in law school, a buddy of mine, we go, we get into my second year in law school, a buddy of mine convinced me to go into officer's candidate school to be, to go into JAG. And I, and my thought to myself was, uh, officer's candidate school will fix me. That's not how it works. <laughs> You know, and like you said, you know, like we both know that in the program, you know, you wherever you go, you take you with you. So it doesn't matter where you go or what new job you start. Yeah. You're, fault, so, you're taking yourself with you. So I show up at Officers Candidate School. It was at Quantico. And they're screaming and I'm just lost. And I mean, and you know, I'm not drinking and I just feel like crap. And I, I, I remember it was like it was yesterday. You had to, everyone went in for three minutes with the captain, with this captain. And you stood there and he had to ask you how you, I specifically remember being asked how I did on my PT test, which I took along 
uh, the Allegheny River. You know, you run and you do the push-ups and all that. And I gave him this number and made the mistake of saying, I thought I did pretty well. And he stood up and started screaming at me, calling me a loser and all that stuff. And I thought, oh, man, uh, I feel like I'm uh, in high school. You know, I'm that little boy in high school again. And then I realized they're going to shave my head. And then the body image issue started kicking in. I'm not getting my head shaved. And I decided there and then that that wasn't for me. So I went in and I told, I, I, I uh, honestly, I faked a uh, knee injury. I went in and they sent me to Fort Belvoir. I went into, I went to Fort Belvoir and it was a Navy corpsman who was talking to me. And uh, I started, he started examining me and he looked at me so sympathetically and with a soft voice and said, do you want out? I said, yes. And that was the end. So maybe you know that that was a God thing. Maybe there maybe there's you know an, another reason why you're you're helping more people by doing what you're doing now than you would have served if, while you were. I in mean, America. I never. I mean, I I don't like revisionist co- recovery, but I was so dysfunctional. And and you know, the military's job is not to fix people; it's to break you down, yep. and, and and then build you in in a certain in a certain way. It's not their job to fix people, so I never should have been there. So I, I walk back to my, uh, I, 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 I get back to the base and I go into the surgeon instructor and he start, you know, you do the knock and he starts screaming at me because I didn't say something right. Or I don't think I spoke in the second person like you're supposed to. And I showed him the paper that was, and then all of a sudden their demeanor changed. Son, you're out. And all of a sudden it was my first name and everything was okay. <laughs> it was, uh, it was weird. It was, I mean, uh, and I have the greatest respect for those who serve. It was just a huge mistake that I made. So now, did you join a, a law firm when you graduated? Or uh, I graduated and I moved to Dallas, Texas, because both of my brothers lived here. And I thought that they could fix me, right? They loved me unconditionally. And then uh, I, had, I, I took the PA bar, picked up Labor Day 1986, and uh, moved here, moved in with my brother Mark. And it was like throwing gasoline on a fire. Because they're uh, drinking, they they, they, don't, they don't do drugs, but they're out dating. So my drinking escalated, and then in the summer of 1987, Richard, in a nightclub in Dallas, in the bathroom, I discovered the one thing that, for the first time in my life, allowed me to look in the mirror and, for the first time in my young 20-something years, love who I saw. What do you think that was? I'm going to say it had something to do with a mirror and a little white powder. There you go. I discovered cocaine. I never did my first line of cocaine in that bathroom. And for the first time in my life, loved who I saw in the mirror. For the first time in my life, believed that my mother loved me. And she did. The first time in my life, that curly brown haired girl loved me. All the girls in the nightclub I'm about to go up to love me. The world loves Brian. But then the high wore off. And Brian hated Brian again. And I had to have that high again and again and again. Cocaine and alcohol took over my life as a practicing lawyer. I failed the Texas bar three times as a result of uh, being more interested in cocaine and alcohol before finally passing. Uh, I lost my law practice. I got arrested for DWI. And it got to the point where my brother Mark put me to work for him. Uh, And I should acknowledge I have privilege. It would be disingenuous. I have skin color privilege. I financial privilege. I have the privilege of a brother who loves me dearly and who's wealthy and put me to work for him. Uh, and I failed miserably. I was showing up for work drunk and hungover and he had to pull me out of that. And 
Richard Mark was supporting me. I had no clients left. My law practice had imploded. And in the summer, in the summer of 2005, I became so despondent that I would never look in the mirror and see someone I loved. I would never love myself. All I saw was a dark hole, this black dark hole that I decided I would be doing my family a favor of ending my life by suicide. And it was close. I, uh, I sent a disturbing email to a friend. He got a hold of both my brothers. My younger brother, Jeff, came into my house and there was a 45 automatic on my nightstand. There was cocaine everywhere and alcohol everywhere. And they took me kicking and screaming on my first trip to a Dallas psychiatric hospital. And they, uh, they're trying to save my life. I'm trying, all I think of is get out of my life. Uh, let me go back to the people who love me at least until the cocaine and alcohol run out, right? Then they don't love me anymore. And uh, so the, they, they, could, they wanted to put a psychiatric hold on me and I knew what to say. In Texas, you have to be a danger to yourself or others for a short-term hold, so much to the chagrin of my brothers. Uh, they couldn't do that. And, I, and again, I have enormous privilege, enormous, uh, that, a lot of, that most people don't enjoy. Uh, Mark was, they were willing to send me to treatment from right there, put me on a plane and I refused. And I would be disingenuous not to acknowledge that privilege. Uh, and so we did what I call the Cuban rehab. They said, uh, okay, we're going to take you home, take your car keys, and, uh, and you'll be okay for, after two weeks. That's not how addiction works. I had a few thoughts to that. Uh, one, no problem, my drug dealer delivers. And two, now they know. Now they really know it's in their face. So what am I going to do? Am I going to find recovery? No, I wasn't ready for that. I'm going to distance. I'm going to stop seeing my brothers. I'm going to stop seeing my family, my nieces and nephews. And I am going to retreat into my bottle, into my baggie, and bring the party to me. Yeah, and I totally get that because I had um, my cousins were very successful business owners, and one became a doctor. So I was like the black sheep, and I'm like, listen, if I'm going to be the black sheep, I'm going to be the blackest sheep that there is. So I'm going to party, and I'm going to do what the hell I want to do. Yeah, and I, I wasn't ready for recovery. I, I just wasn't. I mean, there's a saying about cocaine. It's fun until it's not, right? Uh, and, and then when it's not, it's really not. And uh, hopefully there haven't been, you know, and hopefully you're still above ground, right? But uh, to, just to show you how crazy things got, right? The quote-unquote insanity of addiction. In, in 2006, when the Mavs were going to the NBA championship for the first time, you know, as you might guess, I was going to get some pretty good seats for those games. And I also had an opportunity to get a couple of tickets for friends. I didn't give them to my friends. Didn't sell them on eBay. I traded them to my cocaine dealer for $1,000 in cocaine. He shows up at my house. I give him the tickets. He gives me this giant Ziploc baggie of blow. I run upstairs and line out some lines. And our cocaine users were a funny bunch, especially in pandemic times. We'll sanitize our hands, wash our hands and all this. But we'll shove a dollar bill up our nose. It's been used by God knows who and had God knows what on it. But now we were at the point where cocaine was really no longer being fun. It was no longer fun. It was just chasing a high, chasing it high, bad high. And also the paranoia. I decide, I get really paranoid, think I hear the cops outside, they're not there, but I hide the blow in a closet and I drive to a Lowe's where I buy electrical face plates to drill in a saw. I drive back to my house and I go into the, I go to the drywall in the closets and drill and saw these fake electrical outlets. 
and I take the cocaine and put it in smaller Ziploc baggies and drill and slap all these fake electrical outlets around the house with cocaine in it inside the drywall. Like the DEA and the cops have never thought of that before. Think I'm the smartest lawyer ever. And then later in the evening, I got all paranoid and I took the cocaine back out and flushed it down the toilet. Now $900. The next morning comes, Richard. I wake up and did I flush all my cocaine down the toilet? I'm a moron. There's another game tonight. I call Mark, get two more tickets, rinse, wash, repeat. The dealer shows up at my house and says, dude, you did all that last night. I don't want to tell him I flush it down the toilet like an idiot. Yes, give me more. And he said, okay, here's another giant baggie. I give him the two tickets, line it out, just another bad high. And it was never, maybe you have a problem. It was maybe, maybe I need to change dealers or change from Grey Goose to Jack Daniels. Hot it behind the electrical outlets, take it back out again. And for the second night in a row, go to that same toilet, drop to my knees like I'd done so many times, hoping or praying for something or someone to take away the shame and the pain and flushed it down the toilet for the second night in a row. The insanity of addiction, doing the same thing over and over the same way and hoping for a different result. But as we know, it's not. It's a biological process with environmental triggers, genetic triggers, and so many different variables. That was my life as a lawyer. <laughs> so were you hoping that the Mavs made it to seven games? Yeah, I was. We, we unfortunately lost uh, that one. But in 2011, when I was sober, we won it. So now, you know, everybody knows what their come to Jesus moment was, or they know when they decided I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. What was take us back to that moment when you said, all right, I need help. It was Easter weekend, 2007. Uh, the January before, I'd met a woman named Amanda, and we had started dating. I was during one of my week-long birthday parties uh, when that started when the cocaine, you know, when that ended when the cocaine was gone. And we, I was probably in day four or five of it. And she came into this bar, she's very light drinker, doesn't do drugs. And I guess I was w- able to wear one of the last masks that we struggle with, that we wear, right, when we're deep in addiction to convince people, try to convince people that were these respectable, I'm a respectable lawyer. We started dating and she moves in with me. And I remember someone saying, Brian, you do what you do. She doesn't do what you do. How is that going to work? And I said, I'm going to stop now. So I'm starting to think about it. The stages have changed. I'm starting, I realize I have a problem and I'm starting to really think about this. And Easter weekend, 2007, she had lived with me for maybe a week. She goes away to Houston to visit her family. I go out with my buddies. Suddenly, it's two days later. It's Sunday mid-afternoon. She's looking down at me. I'm in bed. Two days had gone by. I'd had a blackout. I had no idea how I got home. There's cocaine everywhere. There's Xanax. Uh, I had been getting black market Xanax. Now that works. Yeah. Cocaine through the night and Xanax through the day. Tough to be a competent lawyer doing that. And uh, she's, she's probably trying to figure out if she walked in the right house. She's also a lawyer. I'm trying to figure out what lie I can tell to explain this law and order television series orgy of evidence that I might not be the person I represented myself to be. And all I could think of was the metaphorical run home to mama. Uh, take me to back to the Green Oaks Hospital. You've been, a, you've been a Green Oaks Psychiatric Hospital? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later. I need time to think of a better lie. <laughs> So we're standing in the parking lot of Green Oaks and she's crying and I'm thinking she's gone. And she didn't leave, Richard. She stood by me. 
We dated for over a decade while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery in the rooms. And we've now been married. Uh, we'll have five years coming up. So not all relationships will survive it, but ours was able to. Uh, but I had to do the work, right? Because you can't recover for other people. You might start recovery for other people, but uh, to have a strong recovery, it had to be for me. And I thought about something else in that parking lot. I thought about my father, who, as I said, was a veteran of the Pacific, uh, Korea, fixed cars, uh, had a trim shop for a living, put on convertible tops uh, with his older brother, Marty, until he passed away, the middle of three boys like me. I thought about something he's always said to Mark, Jeff, and I. He said, guys, no matter where you go in life, no matter what happens, you pick up that phone and you tell your brothers you love them. You tell your brothers you are there for them. You make sure they are okay. My father was the middle of three boys like me. He understood the bond of family, another privilege, because a lot of people struggling with addiction don't have that. And I thought about that, and I wasn't ready to lose my family. Why then and not in 2005 or any other time? I don't know, right? Why do people continually relapse? Things have to come together at the right time. And so, and I wouldn't lose their love, but they had had enough. And I wasn't seeing my family and my father and my nieces and nephews. And I decided it was time standing in there in that parking lot. That was my, uh, that was my quote unquote rock bottom, my tipping point, standing in that parking lot waiting for intake at Green Oaks Hospital for the second time. So the next day I walked into my psychiatrist's office who I'd been lying to, lying to, lying to for two years. Well, why would you lie to your psychiatrist? Shame knows no hourly rate. He's given me antidepressants while I'm also doing blow and drinking. That works out well. I refuse to go to residential treatment because my ego is much too high and uh, there are no lawyers there, right? <laughs> and uh, I at first refused to go to 12 step because those were the only two choices I was given. We now know today there are many pathways to recovery. I said, doctor, I can't go to 12-step. I see them outside next door. They're smoking. Secondhand smoke will kill you, doctor. <laughs> so there's always a reason not to recover. But I know, knew I, had to sh I wanted to show my now wife something, my brother something, and myself something. So that same day, April 8, 2007, I walked into the rooms of 12-step, sat down in a hard, uncomfortable plastic chair, and I was bawling, and I smelled. And... Richard, you know what I wanted more than anything sitting in that chair for What's the that? first time? It wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about being an alcoholic or anything like that. If sitting in that chair would allow me for the first time in my life to wake up the next morning, walk to the mirror, birthday suit naked, and for the first time see my reflection and love myself without the aid of alcohol or cocaine, I would sit in that chair. If, I, if it would allow me, if sitting in that chair would allow me to look in my reflection and say, Brian, you are enough, you are loved, and it is okay to love yourself however you look, I would sit in that chair. And I sat, and I sat, and I sat, and I underwent a lot of therapy. I'm still in therapy today for body image issues, for my underlying trauma. And uh, I still, uh, now I still do speaker meetings today. Haven't been to an in-person one because of, in a while because of, uh, COVID, but uh, I'm still in therapy and uh, I'm living uh, what I consider a much better life and my best life uh, that I don't think would ever have been possible had I not found recovery. I know it wouldn't be possible. I'd be dead. Now, for me, um, I remember because it was January 1st, 1989, New Year's Day, uh, almost got locked up, but they, they gave me a break. They said I had to go to uh, 90 meetings in 90 days 
Uh, I hit like 300 in a row and I was 20 years old and I'm sitting in this deep, dark basement drinking stale coffee, eating nasty cookies with these old grumpy guys. Oh, yeah. And I was scared. I, like you said, I smelled. And, you know, for you, it must have been a little bit weird because your name is Brian. They don't give a crap what your last name is. You know, they just want to know, are you Brian? Are you an alcoholic? Are you an addict? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I walk in there and, and I mean, and I knew a lot of the people, right? A lot of them are lawyers <laughs> and they were just happy to see me there. I'd stay in touch with quite a few of them. Uh, I mean, 15 years later, people pass, people move, you know, people change groups and this and that. But I'm, I'm still friends with a lot of them. I still have the same sponsor and uh, John G and uh, things are good. But now, you know, a lot of times when you get clean and you get sober, you, your, your mindset totally changes because, you know, one thing about being an addict or an alcoholic is when, when you're sober for a, a long, long enough, your, your bullshit detector is so great. You can tell everybody that's sitting there trying to bullshit you. And sometimes you, ha- you have to get away from the people, places and things. So was that something that you had to do? Did well, you- yeah, sure. I mean, there are all the rituals we go through, right? I mean, the first day of sobriety, I uh, uh, actually, at the first day of uh, AA, I, uh, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. You can delete that out. Uh, first day of 12-step, my bad. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I got rid of all the shot glasses, the wine glasses, dumped all my bottles in the garbage, and, you know, deleted the number of my drug dealers. These are rituals, right? Because it's not like deleting the name of my drug dealer doesn't mean I didn't know it in my head. Yeah. But, the most important, but these are important rituals. But the most important thing was the first 90 days, Richard, I had people calling me and the pullback to the way of life was so strong that I did my 190 because uh, without my mutual aid, without my fellowship, without my family and places to go, I'd be sitting alone in my room or in my house and that call would come. And, you know, and then I, they, all of a sudden the ether smell would come in my nose. Right. And uh, it was important to have places to go and people to talk to. So now, you know, we're talking about your experience. Now tell us about your strength and your hope. And my strength and Brian, my hope. What Brian's life is like today. Uh, I work with other people. I work a lot with a lot of law students, a lot of lawyers, uh, people just email me. I've gotten a reputation within the legal profession. You know, I've written the, uh, a book that is very popular in the legal profession with law students and just take things one day at a time. And people email me and call me. I don't, I mean, I just help them with my, st- I'm only an expert in my story. I don't claim to be an expert in anything but my story. And so I tell them what I've done and, you know, your path is your path, right? I meet people where they are. I've talked to people who are in heart, you know, who, struggling with opioids and harm reduction with a lot of people in 12-step don't like, they're on Suboxone and methadone. But it's not my job to tell people what their path should be. It's All I do is tell them what my experience is with my path, which is abstinence. And it had to be abstinence. Uh, there was no such thing as one line of Coke and one drink for me. So there, there would be no, there was really no other way to go for me. But I acknowledge that there are many ways to go for many other people. And uh, here, my, 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 Hope is that I'm Jewish, and there is a saying in the Jewish in Judaism. It's a Kabbalistic saying called Tikkun Olam. It means changing the world with acts of kindness. 
And all I can do is uh, change my little part of the world with acts of kindness. And I do that by trying to help others when they come to me. Now, um, talk to us about your, your book. I loved your book. I've read it twice now. I'm on number three. So uh, I try to, when I find something that I like, I read it first and then I outline it and then I study it. So talk to us about writing your first book. And was it very cathartic for you to write it? Yeah, the first one was Shattered Image, which was cathartic. And that was more about my struggle with body image and eating disorders. Uh, very cathartic. Yeah, I wasn't looking to help anyone but me. But I found out that it had a uh, huge impact on males who struggle with eating disorders and males who struggle with body image. It became very well known. And my la- obviously, my last name didn't hurt. I uh, can't, can't be disingenuous about that either. Uh, that somebody uh, you know with a known last name was struggling with body image and eating disorders. Uh, then came the addicted lawyer, which was more which was more of a true memoir uh, about my struggle with uh, cocaine and alcohol and how it impacted my life as a practicing lawyer. And that has become very popular, certainly among the legal profession. Although I think it's just you know the the the, the profession the professions may change, but everything is a constant in terms of. Cocaine to nose, uh, needle in arm, drink to mouth. And then my third one's a complete shift, which is coming out in December called The Ambulance Chaser. It is my first novel. It is about a Pittsburgh lawyer uh, who struggles with cocaine and alcohol, who finds himself accused and arrested for the murder of a high school classmate 30 years prior when her remains are discovered. And he goes on the run, becomes a fugitive from justice to find the one person who happens to be a high school classmate who's gone off the grid, who can prove his innocence and save the life of his abducted son. And that's going to be called the ambulance chaser. That is called the ambulance chaser. It is available for for pre-order. Hope you'll go and check it out and it'll be out in December. Come on. You know, I'm going to check it out. Give it, give it some love. Oh, definitely. So now, um, because a lot of times, like I had uncles when I, when I, when I was in addiction, they were very successful business owners and I wish I would have talked to them more and got more of their wisdom. So to sometimes like when you're writing a new book and, and you want to know about marketing, you ask your brother, Hey bro, I need some help. Can you help me with this? Or do you well, not? I mean, I mean, Mark, you know, I mean, I, I try, I stay within my wheelhouse. I mean, uh, one of the reasons my book has done so well early, the ambulance is because Mark has been very helpful with his large following. That's what siblings who love each other do. So talk to us about the relationship between the three of you guys. Well, we're all very close, obviously. Uh, my younger brother, Jeff, has a son, and uh, uh, he works for Mark, and, and Mark you know, does his thing. And uh, we're all very close. We see each other when we can. We certainly text and talk every week. We live walking distance from each other. Until my my father passed away, he lived across the street from me. Those were the values he's instilled. He instilled in us. And I guess you guys are kind of close the same way the Gronkowskis are. You know, it's very, it's a family unit. Uh, I I don't know anything about Gronkowski. I mean, I know he's a football player, but but I'm a Steelers fan, remember. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we're close. I can tell you, uh, I don't know his relationships, but we're very close. We would do anything for each other. Now, are you a big Mavs fan, obviously? Oh, yeah, yeah, obviously. And I not a, I, I bleed black and gold being born and raised from Pittsburgh, Steelers, Pirates, Penguins. I'm a, I'm the, I'm a huge Pirates fan. Uh, I grew up, my father took me to my first game at Forbes Field. And uh, 
but I'm a fan of I'm I'm a fan of all Pittsburgh sports teams, but I consider baseball and the Pirates my greatest sports love. Yeah, my son is a big Steelers fan. He's a big Steelers fanatic. So. Yeah, not looking too good this year. And I was with GNC, and they were out of out of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Yes, they were. They're based in Pittsburgh. So I was with them for over thirty years. So I got a last couple of questions, and I know you got so much to do, and I'm so grateful that you time just took time out to hang out with us today. Um, last two questions: uh, How do we find you? How can we? Whatever your mission is, how can we support your mission? Uh, well, my you can uh, you can find me if you're struggling. You can. Email me at Brian with an I at BrianCuban.com. Uh, I have a website, BrianCuban.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, BCuban. Uh, if there's any way I can support you, if you're struggling with recovery, I mean, everyone needs someone to talk to. Uh, I'm, I'm always there. I'm always in here. Uh, I, obviously, I would love it if people would check out my new book uh, to self-promote, The Ambulance Chaser, and pre-order it. Uh, and, you know, just reach out and say hello. Now, where can they? Uh, where is that book going to be available? It's it's available right now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Okay. Now, my last question I have because I, you know, I talked to a thousand people, I get a thousand different answers. As, as you know, in, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, our mayors are insane, um, but we're still cracking down on everything with COVID. So we lost a lot of jobs, and some parents are driving for Uber, Lyft, just to put food in the kids' mouths. So if I ask the average person to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if somebody's listening to us right now that is struggling with body dysmorphia or struggling with any kind of addiction, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get some help? Shoot me an email. I'll find I'll help you find resources. That that's about as simple as you can get. What is your email address? Brian with an I at BrianCuban.com. That's you can't get any better than that, brother. I'm so grateful that you took the time to hang out today. Um, hopefully we'll be able to talk more in the future. I can't wait for your new book to come out. And then I would like to maybe do a Facebook live and talk about the book. Absolutely. So it was an honor to come on. Just reach out anytime, Richard. All right, brother. Well, God bless you and God bless your beautiful bride. Thank you. Have a wonderful week. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support vertical momentum and you're always looking to get better also we have our new coffee brand coming out it's called vertical momentum coffee it's ass kicking coffee and and it will it will get you moving in the morning so guys if you're interested go to www.richardkaufman.net check us out leave us a note Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting 
our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.